Last week, we were on this outline on the atonement, and if, if you brought it from last week, good. If you didn't, I, we didn't do any more this morning, did we, Garth, because we've been on this for three weeks now. And so you'll just have to look on with a neighbor if, you didn't, if you're new, and this will just be the first few minutes here. Um, uh, I'm at the end of the outline from last week on the atonement, and right at the end we got to this question, did Christ descend into hell? Because in the Apostles' Creed it says uh, he was uh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. And I went through some historical background saying that phrase wasn't in there in the early versions of the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't in there until 390 A.D., the first instance where somebody mentions that it was there. 390 is a long time after the apostles had died. I think John, the last apostle, died between 90 and 100 A.D., so uh, 90 to 390, that's 300 years after the apostles, the first time that phrase appeared. And then after 390, it didn't appear again until 650 A.D., which is a very, very long time, and it probably first meant he descended into the grave um, because uh, the first version that had it didn't have the phrase was buried. But it got kind of accumulated in uh, the history of the church, and so then people made up different explanations for it. My, um, my own understanding was that I don't think it, I don't think as it is in the creed now, that it's wise or helpful or useful, because I don't think after Jesus died that he descended into hell. In fact, uh, oh, we talked about that, okay. Probably first meant he descended into the grave. Possible biblical support, we looked at those and tried to give an answer to those. Um, my, and then, um, and then my, on the other side, though, I won't go through those verses, but on the other side, we looked at these verses that indicated, I think, that Jesus... When he died, his spirit went right into the presence of the Father. He didn't, didn't go to hell uh, because he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And that Greek word for paradise, it's used in 2 Corinthians, it's used in Revelation, but it means the presence of God in heaven. It's another word for heaven, basically. And uh, John 19.30, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. I think that means his suffering was finished. He didn't have to go to hell to suffer anymore or be separated from God anymore. And he said, Luke 23:46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So I think he meant that he was going to the Father, into the presence of the Father when he died. Uh, just as Stephen, in imitation of Jesus, said in Acts 7:59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And of course, Stephen, when he died, he went right to heaven. So my conclusion was, I don't think Jesus descended into hell. I don't say it as part of the Apostles' Creed. I think when Jesus died, his body remained on earth, as ours does when we die. But his spirit went right into the presence of the Father, as ours will, when we die. And he's the pattern for us. And then on Easter Sunday morning, his spirit returned to his body, and he was raised from the dead. Um, so, even famous ancient creeds don't equal scripture. Um, so an, an old mistake is still a mistake. And Christ's sufferings ended on the cross. Praise God for that. That, that, that means that his work of paying the penalty for our sins was completed. And I think this is also a reminder there isn't a second chance for salvation after death that the, that the Bible talks about. Uh, and some people would say Christ descended into hell to give a second chance for salvation, but um, I don't think there are verses that support that. Now, the reason I went over that again for the last three or four minutes three, uh, is to say I got to the end and the time was up 
And I said, oh, let's sing a hymn really quickly. And I didn't have any chance for any questions. And I said I would come back to this and give you an opportunity to interact on it if you wish. So, Trent, is there a way to get some of that light out of my eyes? Thanks. Okay, John. No, who was it? You, John? Yes. I notice that the word again seems to come and go. And I can remember saying the Apostles' Creed for a long time where we said, and he rose again from the dead. Oh. And I'm wondering, why is it an again? Did he do it before? Or is that just one of those words ah. in there that... See, okay. he rose from the dead. There it's, there it's a rose from the dead. Yeah. I, I said for many years, and he rose again from the dead. He ascended yeah. to heaven and sitteth okay. on the right hand of Um. I I think, I'm not absolutely sure, but I think it's just two different ways of English translation of either a Greek or a Latin early copy. Um, and uh, I don't think anyone ever wanted it to mean, this was the second time he rose from the dead, rose again from the dead. I think it just means... He rose from the dead. I, so probably again was dropped out because people just thought, well, what, what do you mean by again? And um, so I don't know where rose again came from, but I think it's just a different translation. I don't think there's any difference in meaning intended. Good, good, okay. What else, Any anything else? And, and Ed? For our sake, uh, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And uh, as in becoming sin, he becomes repugnant to God the Father. And I think following from that, the idea that uh, he was separated, the Trinity was split for whatever moment because of that. Okay. Leaving the possibility that we're discussing. Yeah. Um, well, I, Ed, I, I agree. He made him to be no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It means that uh, God put on Jesus somehow, that we don't understand, the, the uh, guilt, the liability for punishment that we deserve. And so he thought of him as sin, and so therefore he poured out his wrath on him, and there was a separation from the favor of God the Father in some way. Um, but I think it happened on the cross not after he died, okay? Because that's where, that's where this, and then when he says it is finished, then I think it is finished. So do you want to come back on that? Yeah, he also is reported to have said, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. And I think it had to do with yep. this verse. I agree completely. And, but that was on the cross, okay. too. Yeah. And then it was over. So good, Ed. Ed raised another question that I really didn't talk about that's a really hard question, and that is, what is the relationship among the members of the Trinity at the point where Jesus is bearing our sins and dies? <clears throat> I'm going to just give you a quick summary of where I would fall down, where I'd fall on this in terms of my understanding. Um, um, I think that, oh, as we've gone over the Trinity in class a number of weeks ago, think that God is one being, but within that one being, there are three persons. But each person, but the being of each person is equal to the being of the whole of God. And how, how one God can be 
one being in three persons. I don't know. It's unlike anything we know. I don't think there was any disruption in the being of God, but there are personal interactions among the members of the Trinity. So the Father sends the Son into the world. Father and Son send the Holy Spirit. The Father says at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, if the Father can talk about being pleased with the Son, then I think it is possible that the divine nature of the Father also um, expressed his wrath toward the, the person of Christ, God and man together, and that would mean also toward the divine being of Christ. But there's nothing in the Bible that gives me too much help about that. It's just analogy from saying, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Or Jesus in John 17 talking about the love with which the Father loved him from the foundation of the world. Or glorify me in your presence, John 17, 24, with the glory I had with you before the world was made. So there was interpersonal interaction of various sorts. And I think that allows for the displeasure of the Father, not that the Son had done anything wrong, but he voluntarily took on himself uh, the guilt for our sins. I don't know if that helps. That I don't think the divine nature of the Son died or anything like that. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. Or God would cease to be God. So. Clyde. Okay. Wow. <laughs> As soon as I open up to questions, I realize there are hard questions that I didn't uh, address. Can you repeat Were the, the Father and the Spirit on the cross with Christ? I think the Father, I mean, there was a, they're different. So the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit. Even though they're one being, they're different persons. So that on the cross was Jesus' human and divine nature together. The Father was, I think, putting the punishment for sin on the Son. So the Father himself wasn't bearing that. Only the Son was bearing that punishment. And the Holy Spirit, the only verse I know about the Holy Spirit's work at that point is in Hebrews 8 or 9, 9 I think, it says, through the eternal Spirit he offered himself up to God. So I think there was a helping, enabling work of the Holy Spirit but again, the Holy Spirit didn't bear the penalty for our sin. The Father didn't bear the penalty for our sin, just the Son. Is that... No, the divine nature of Christ, I think, did bear the penalty. But I'm way out beyond where I have any verses to talk about it. It's just, it just that, I, that I know about. But... but it's from this, Clyde, it's from thinking that if Jesus' human nature alone bore the penalty, he could have maybe endured the penalty for one person's sin, but for all the millions of people who would be saved, I think he had to be God in order to bear that, be able to bear that as well. Interesting, isn't it? That though, I mean, both your question and Ed's question are questions that we wonder about, and the Bible just decides not to give us very much information. Yeah. <laughs> so it's best for me to say, like like uh, Daryl does, a step away from the Bible and away from the pulpit and say, I don't have a verse here, but this looks like what happened. You know, it's one of those things that we get to heaven and we're going to say, oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. Okay.
uh, add again. The other part that is related to he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf is that by that, God became just and the justifier. Yeah. So it's really interwoven together. And Yeah. I mean, Wayne, it's complicated. We want you to give us lots of answers. Yeah. No, but it is the way in which God's love could, could provide salvation for us and God's justice could be satisfied so that sin would be punished at the same time. And God alone provided that solution. And that is the wonderful, amazing thing. It is, it is not simple. It is not smile, God loves you, and he cares, you know, he forgives everybody. It's, there's a little bit of truth in that. But, uh, but this is real, it is a complex and profound uh, truth of what the Bible says. So, okay, anything else, uh, Joyce? Well, um, Joyce says she hates to expose her ignorance. I just exposed my ignorance in the last two questions. <laughs> Where were the believers of the Old Testament before Christ died? Okay. I think... Well, I, okay, in heaven. <laughs> okay. Um, but... Um, People disagree on that. So I first gave you what I think. They were in heaven with God. And then I can say there are other views. And there is a view, especially among some Lutheran uh, writers, that Jesus went to the realm where the Old Testament saints were and proclaimed release to them. It wouldn't really be hell, but kind of a holding area. I've forgotten the technical term, and then let them have full access into God's presence in heaven because his redemption was done. Um, um, it's hard because there isn't much in the Old Testament that talks about this. But I would look at, I would look at verses like Psalm 23, where David says, "Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." He expects to be in God's presence forever. And, uh, of course, Enoch was taken because God took him, took him up into heaven. Elijah was taken up by a chariot of fire into heaven. And I think that probably was designed to teach people that, yes, God did take believers to himself at the time of the Old Testament. When Jesus comes to the New Testament and disputes with these Jewish leaders who didn't believe in the resurrection... He said, well, I, and then he quoted the Old Testament where God said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. So I think he's saying that they are living right now in the presence of God by, by saying he's not the God of the dead, but the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, implying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living there. And in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, again, that's in the Gospels, but it's still before Jesus' death. Um, He's in Abraham's bosom, which is pictured as a place of comfort and joy, I think, in the presence of God. So, but people disagree on that. There's not a unit, because there isn't a lot in the Old Testament. I'm probably missing some verses in the Old Testament, but there are, there are some things like that. So, yeah, Mike. Somewhere in the New Testament, I can't I wish I could quote where, I thought the believers prior to Christ were 
uh, Christ's resurrection were asleep. I'm not sure the term they used, and I don't know where they read that. And then when he was resurrected, they were as well. Do you, can, do you remember anything about that? There are two or three passages. When Jesus went to heal Lazarus, he said he's not dead, he's sleeping. And they laughed at him. But, but, and uh, Paul says those who have, well, even in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if uh, there is no resurrection, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I think that's 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but I think it's just an image uh, of dying. But I don't think it means that they are not conscious. Um, uh, because, um, let me see, why do I think that? There was a teaching called soul sleep, and I think Seventh-day Adventists hold to it, that when, when Christians even die, we just sleep. There's no consciousness until Jesus comes back. But uh, John Calvin and the Reformers argued against that, and said, no, we go right into the presence of God. Paul wants to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. And um, um, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth. And there, there's a lot of New Testament passage about going right into God's presence. And so by analogy, we would say, okay, if that's what happened to New Testament believers, probably Old Testament believers too. I'm struggling because I'm not sure what, you weren't sure what verse, and I'm not sure what verse. So, yeah. yeah. I think... I think they went right into the presence of God in their spirits, but without bodies. Okay, Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, see Moses and Elijah. See, this is before Jesus' death. Moses and Elijah appear with him there. <clears throat> Looks like they're they're still living, and and conscious and awake and alive. So, best I can do. Okay, one more. Uh, in Matthew, it says. Um, um, the, that the saints were, when, when Jesus died, the, yeah. the tombs were open, and the saints <clears throat> who had fallen asleep came out of their yep. tombs. I'm, I'm <coughs> thinking maybe like... Sorry? I'm thinking maybe like if God has a different perception of time, mm -hmm. like we will... Um, maybe we will... Um, it would be like no time between we die and go to heaven, but time like time for God maybe is different. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if people are not conscious when they die, of course, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it would be like having an operation and you yeah. wake up, oh, what happened? So that's the thought. That <clears throat> is, yeah, and people who would argue they... for that say that. I don't think that's true because of okay. today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, that's really a promise of being in fellowship with Jesus to, where he says to the thief on the cross, Mm -hmm. um, and Paul says, not my desire is to depart and be unconscious in Philippians 1, but he so, says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for mm -hmm. that's far better. It's sure is strong language, I think, for personally being in fellowship with the How Lord. How should we interpret, like, scripture like Matthew, uh, in Matthew? Oh, the saints coming out mm -hmm. of the tombs? Yeah, okay. Matthew 27:52, when Jesus died, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Strange verse. <laughs> um, here's what I think it means. And what's your name? I didn't get your name. Mari. Mari? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
I think it means that a few people <clears throat> in around Jerusalem who had been dead, that they got new resurrection bodies right after Jesus was raised. It says coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. And they appeared to people, and they were kind of evidence, hey, this is what's going to happen to everybody. But no, we don't hear anything more about them. So I think since it says they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, I think they didn't just come back to life. I think they had new resurrection bodies that were made perfect. And so since they're not around anymore today, I think probably when Jesus ascended, God took them up into heaven. It is interesting. In the early history of the church, there's no comment on that verse. In the first, you know, in the first period after. So it's just there. But I think it is... God saying, hey, you want to know what a sample of this is going to be like? Here's some extra additional proof. So, <laughs> John Piper has a little book called, I can't remember, it's a little poem for Christmas, where he makes up a story about <clears throat> how uh, one of the, some of the people raised were the innkeeper who had gotten put, no, the innkeeper's wife and child who had been killed by the Roman soldiers when he went to put all... Herod went to put all the kids to death. It's really moved. It's called the innkeeper, I think. Okay, I think what will go on now is, um, <clears throat> is to the next material. <clears throat> and we are here. Um, I, just, I wanted to take that time just because I didn't want to just talk and talk and talk and give you no time for feedback on it. So thanks for bearing with me on that and, and contributing. Good questions. We are now on the extent of the atonement. First, the question is, whose sins were paid for when Jesus died? Everybody in the whole world and clean people won't be saved? Or just people that God knew would believe? Okay? I do not enjoy talking about this topic very much. Because in 30 years of teaching theology to college students and seminary students, I find that this topic raises lots more questions than it solves for a lot of people, not for everybody. And it's a point where people argue a lot. And then it's another one of these topics where there's I'm not sure if there are any specific verses that really solve the problem for us. So we're reasoning from one group of verses or another. So I thought, oh, maybe I could skip this. <laughs> but then I thought, no, I haven't run away from hard questions in this class, and so I won't run away from this one either. But I'm going to say at the outset, I'll give you my conclusion, but really, really good friends of mine disagree with me on this. I think I may be the only person at Phoenix Seminary who holds the view I hold, but I'm not sure. We haven't talked about it very much. And some people think it's really, really important because it kind of divides true Calvinists from not true Calvinists or truly Reformed from not truly Reformed people. I'll just give you an overview there. Having said that, I think there is some possibility for wonderful application on this too, because it has to do with some of the teaching of Scripture. But I'm going to end up saying, 
Okay, we talked about it, but I don't want to spend forever talking about it. All right? All right but should I go? On? Can I go on? Okay. First, and and there, I don't know if some of you have heard of this or not. There's there's this acronym TULIP, T T U L I P, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, and that's sort of called the five points of Calvinism. And this is L. The third one, limited atonement. That is, that Jesus' death actually paid for the sins of those who would believe, not of everybody. Okay? So that's where we are. Now, the Reformed view has some scripture passages to support it. Christ's death paid for the sins of all who would be saved for all time. And that's, that's the view that I am, I'm going to end up holding, just in fair disclosure here, uh, with some qualifications. It's called particular redemption or limited atonement. Christ died for particular people, for Garth, for Sandy, for Mark, for, Vic, for Andrea, for, see, for individuals, not just everybody. Okay, and um, John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not for everybody, the sheep. Romans 8.32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Paul writing to believers, gave him up for us all. Or Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, not for everybody, but for the church. So that, you, know, you say, well, that sounds pretty good. Okay. But then there are other passages on the other side. And that's what makes it a hard question. Scripture passages used to support the non-reformed view, general redemption or unlimited atonement. Christ's death paid for everyone's sins, even for those who would never believe in him. That is, people in hell, their sins are already paid for. But they're not saved. Why? Because the payment wasn't applied to them. And verses that are used to support that would be John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or John 6.51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Or 1 John 2.2, 2, this one's quite strong. He is the propitiation. That's the sacrifice that bears God's wrath. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Romans 14.15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Well, Destroy, does that mean so they'll never come to the faith? And they're the one for whom Christ died. Or 2 Peter 2, 1, false teachers, even denying the master who bought them. Doesn't it sound like Jesus paid for their sins even though they weren't saved? So there are verses on both sides. Now, here's what I want to say. Some points of agreement. People on both sides agree that not all will be saved. Now, people who hold to unlimited atonement, they don't say that everybody's going to be saved in the whole world, even Hitler or even Pharaoh or even really evil people. So everybody agrees on that. There are some people that are not saved, sadly. And then number two, everybody agrees we can rightly make a free offer of the gospel to every single human being because we don't know who will believe in the gospel. So uh, if I have my friend Sam, I just made up the name Sam right now, and Sam's not a Christian, I say, Sam, if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. 
no qualifications, no hesitation. That's the gospel offer. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So that's a truthful offer. Well, how you say, how can you say that? How can you say, Sam, if you believe in Christ, you'll be saved? Maybe Jesus didn't pay for his sins. See, that's a wrong reasoning. Because if he believes, then God would have known that ahead of time, and Jesus would have paid for his sins. So there's no such thing as a person who says, I want to believe, I want to believe, please, Jesus, accept me. And Jesus said, no, sorry, you weren't counted. Okay, there's no such thing as that. Jesus says, him who comes to me, I will not cast out. So we can make a true offer because we don't know who will believe the gospel. My personal conclusion is this. But let me tell you, this is based on kind of reasoning rather than on Bible verses. Exactly. So I'm kind of over here again. But my conclusion is, I don't think that people in hell will suffer forever for sins that Christ has already paid the penalty for. It's kind of double jeopardy. If Jesus already paid the penalty, then how can these people suffer for those sins? And the people, my good friends on the other side will say, well, they paid the penalty because they didn't accept Jesus' payment. And my answer is, it doesn't look to me, when, it talks, when the Bible talks about hell, it doesn't look to me like people are just suffering for the sin of not accepting Jesus. They're suffering for the sins they committed, all their sins. If they're already paid for, how can, he, how can they suffer for them? So we kind of go back and forth. But this is a logical deduction, not a specific Bible verse. I hold the Reformed view, but I'm less confident about it than about other aspects of the atonement. Now, that's just, I'm just saying that honestly. I'm just saying there might be some mystery here that we don't fully understand. The benefits, however, and people who say, oh, this is an important doctrine, they say, well, look, the benefits are greater assurance of salvation and understanding that Jesus died with specific people in mind, with you and me in mind. That is, he died thinking about me and thinking about Mike and thinking about Ev, individuals in mind. And <clears throat> there's something to say, well, if Jesus' death really paid for my sins, then my salvation is sure, and God will see to it that, that all of his purposes for me are accomplished. And I can see the benefit of that. It gives some assurance. Some points of clarification. The question is, what actually happened? For whose sins did Christ offer payment, and did God accept the payment? Too often, the discussion on this topic has been confused by sentences that can mean different things. Like people say, oh, I believe Christ died for his people only. Well, my answer is, what does the word for mean? Does it mean Christ died to make the gospel available for his people only? That's not true. He died to make the gospel available to everybody. But if for means to actually pay the penalty for, Christ died to actually pay the penalty for his people only, then I, that seems right to me. But you see, if you just have that sentence, if people are arguing over that sentence and they mean different things by four, then they're never going to come to agreement because, because they got different definition of terms. Or, Christ died for all people. What does it mean? Does it mean Christ died to actually pay the penalty for all people? Well, I'm reluctant to say that. Does it mean that Christ died 
to make the gospel available for all people? Yes, of, of course, he did. He died for all people, that is, to make the gospel freely available to everybody. So there's a sense in which I'd agree with both those sentences, and there's a sense in which I would disagree with both those sentences. But in, if you ever get to a discussion about this, it's good to interpret what people say in a sympathetic way, not a hostile way. Say, do you, is this what you mean by the word for? And then try to clarify. Practical pastoral guidance. Um, if this becomes an issue for you, both sides want to avoid implying that people will be saved whether they believe or not. And I think, just honestly, that's true. Um, see, here's what happens in the Reformed view. They say, Mike, if you go out on people that Jesus died for everybody's sins, they're immediately going to think, ah, I don't have to do anything. My sins are all paid for. I don't have to trust in Christ. I'm saved. <laughs> see, there's an, people will say, well, there's a logical deduction there. If you say that everybody's sins are paid for, then they won't even think they have to do anything. And, and, uh, and my answer is that, no, everybody wants to be true to what the Bible says. You have to believe in order to be saved. Whoever believes in him will not be saved, will, be, will, be, will not be condemned, will not perish. Both sides want to affirm that all who sincerely come to Christ for salvation will be saved. Him who comes to me, I will not cast out. That's really important. There has been a massive amount of conflict, I guess is the only word for it, in the Southern Baptist Convention, 16 million member, largest Protestant denomination in the United States, because there are some people in the Southern Baptist Convention who hold very strongly to this limited atonement view or particular redemption. And then evangelism is really important in the Southern Baptist Convention. So other people are saying, well, if you say Jesus didn't pay for the sins of everybody, then, then I don't know if I can do evangelism. And I, that's just misunderstanding, I think. But it's unfortunate. Everybody who comes seeking for salvation will be saved. Both sides agree the gospel offer is genuine and sincere. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. That's true. Point D, finally, is it really that important to argue about this? It's never an explicit topic of discussion in Scripture. John, the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, Apostle James... They placed almost no emphasis on this question. Do you think we should follow their example? Now, I don't know if that made you all upset or made you happy or what, but that's, that's my take on this. And I, that's, um, <laughs> what's your name? James, Jamie. Maybe it's because... What did you it, say first, Jamie? Maybe because they placed emphasis because it was something that was so logically obvious. That because um, we, that Christ died for all who would believe, that meant that no one who did not... That meant that he wouldn't pay the sins for those who, wouldn't, who never believed, you know? Well, um, I don't think so, because it's not logically obvious. Because there's this other thing that's logical that Jesus' death was sufficient for the payment for everybody's sins, but it wasn't applied to everybody's. Yeah. Well, that's because the gospel offer was a free offer to all men, but only yeah. those who are yeah. elective. Uh, those who, it says 
all of the you know, those who were appointed to believe in Acts. And Jesus saying, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Yep. It's, it's Everybody a on both theme. sides agrees with those. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a common theme that Christ that we were chosen before we chose Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. so, and then also because of the double that double jeopardy makes it, it if God if people in hell suffered are suffering for, for sins Christ already paid yeah. for. Yeah. Exactly. It makes God unjust, and, that's, and God's not. So. Yeah. Therefore, their sins couldn't have been paid for. Yeah. It just seems very reasonable. To say that Christ died for particular people. Yep. It seems reasonable to me too, but there are some very reasonable people to whom it doesn't seem reasonable. So and I mean I mean really good friends of mine who are professors of theology who are strong Calvinists, but they're what's called four point Calvinists rather than five point Calvinists. Okay? And and so <laughs> J.I. Packer is J.I. Packer has written a book on this called An Introduction to John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And that's a really strong defense of this. John Piper holds strongly to this as he does to everything. <laughs> He's a good friend. I just, yeah. and he holds it. But now my friend Bruce Ware, who teaches theology at Louisville, at Southern Seminary in Louisville, is the upcoming president of the Evangelical Theological Society, just a godly man. He's a four-point Calvinist. He holds to limited. He, he holds to uh, unlimited atonement, and um, um, and and some of my colleagues, seminary colleagues at, at the seminary. So, anyway, okay. What do we got here? Yes, your name. Tom. Tom. Yes. In uh, Romans 1:18, what do you make of when the gospel says that God made it plain to all mankind what was to be known about Him? I take that to be that God exists and that he has moral standards that people have disobeyed, but not that he made known to them how to be saved. Okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Thanks. good. Thanks. Okay, anything else on this? E.G., you probably have been around this question before. Where is, here we go. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure how to express this, but one thought I have, uh, if the non-believer does not, the person who does not accept Christ, uh, if suffering is eternal separation from God, then it would not be necessary for Jesus to have died for their sins. Therefore, yeah. he didn't. Yeah. That's my answer ultimately. But when I've said that for the last 30 years, people say, oh, <laughs> but we what just, about this? What about this? What about this? We just and need so, to explain it more clearly. <laughs> I have no response. <laughs> okay. Mike, Mike. Mike over here and then Sandy and then I think we'll go on. Thanks a lot. Sometimes I wonder whether we um, may do a disservice to our theology if we contemplate sin and suffering as quantifiable or quantitative parameters. And what I mean by that, when we talk about those, you know, possibly being sent to hell to, you know, suffer or pay for their own atonement, I think maybe that's 
a, a concept that really doesn't exist in Scripture. In other words, um, the only provision that God has made is a perfect sacrifice mm -hmm. and an alternative sacrifice. In other words, we, we don't and we cannot atone for our own sins, so th there cannot be such a thing as a double jeopardy or a double atonement. Mm -hmm. Or the related concept is those that are in hell are paying for their sins and eventually their sins are paid for, and we don't believe in that. So we need to perhaps move away from this quantitative covering and talk about a, a, a perfect covering and a perfect sacrifice. That doesn't mean it's unlimited in the sense that it, cover, it will uh, atone for everyone's sin, but nevertheless, a, uh, not a quantitative suffering and a quantitative yeah. sacrifice, but a perfect sacrifice by a perfect lamb is the, the critical thing that, that provides atonement. I don't, I don't know if I'm explaining well, that right. I, I think yeah, it's a, a uh, quantitation versus an absolute. Yeah, that's interesting, and I'd like to think about that some more, Mark. You're saying get away from this how many people got paid for. It just was a perfect sacrifice, so leave it at that. But but my, my question, I want to come back to this, and maybe it's a question we can't answer. What actually happened on the cross? That is, if... I say the atonement was objective. It really happened. It isn't just something that happens in me. It's really Christ paying the penalty and God, Father, Father accepting the penalty. There was a, a transaction between the, the Father and the Son there whereby sins were actually paid for. Well, did Christ offer payment for everybody's sin and God accept the payment at that time? Um, that's, where, that's where the focus is, and that's what makes it difficult for me now. Um, I'm feeling like I'd like to go on to the resurrection here pretty soon. I said I see Sandy, and then I've got Andrea, and then I have Bob. I guess Bob's got the microphone. Sandy, would you just hold for one minute? Because Bob has the microphone. Uh, it's hard to argue <laughs> with him. Okay. I'd like to read from Isaiah 53. Yep. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I guess I disagree. Yeah, I guess I disagree. It, so the us would be everybody, you think. And see, the other people would say the us all is just the believers. Okay, Sandy. Yes, and then Andrea, two, and then I'm not going to see anybody else's hand. Two Old Testament um, passages strike me as uh, pertinent here. In Deuteronomy 29.29, where it says the secret things belong to the Lord uh, our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Okay. And the idea that, that, you know, in order for us to do the law, there was mosaic, but for us, the whole yeah. broad intention of God's will. Let, and Let me just stop you yes. there, Sandy, and say my instinct, my hunch is there is a lot of Deuteronomy 29:29 in this question. Exactly. It's the secret things that belong to the Lord our God, that there are mysteries here that are more complex than God has shown us now. Exactly. And so, and I, Mike may have been trying to get at that too, say, hey, let's not think quantity, quality, you know, that kind of, but we're saying, well, this might be a, this might be a question that we just can't understand in this age. Right, and then the other passage, at least to me, tells me what to do in these times of 
when I confront a quote-unquote secret thing, a mystery, that yep. uh, an aspect okay. of mystery, and that's Psalm 131, which I find very comforting. It reads, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lo- um, lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Mm-hmm. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, oh, my hope is in the Lord from this time forth and evermore. So in, yeah. in other words, my whole bottom line point is the final analysis is we can trust the heart of God. Yeah, yeah. With Good. all the things yeah. we don't understand. I appreciate that, We Sid. can trust Good. the heart of God. Good, thank you. And Andrea. Andrea. Um, Cindy might have answered it, but yeah, I... It went, Whenever um, I hear about limited atonement, it's I, I have four children, so I think of all the unborn and um, mm-hmm. that never made it, and yep. the young um, who haven't grasped the concept. And um, just I think you've discussed this before, but I was just curious on your opinion on that. Yeah, I think that the the children of believers who die in infancy are all saved. Of believers, the. The Bible doesn't tell us anything on children of non-believers. And so we trust God's love and his justice, and we don't know because I don't want to say something where the Bible doesn't speak. Um, But for the children of believers, there are all sorts of promises giving hope that God takes the children of believers to himself. Noah and his children came into the ark. Uh, Rahab wasn't her children, but her whole family got rescued at Jericho. And there are these, you will be saved and your household. And whole households got saved in the book of Acts and the Philippian jailer and things like that. And David, when his son dies, is in, I will go to him. He will not uh, return to me. I think David expects a reunion with his son. And just let me say here, I, two weeks ago or so, John Piper, who believes strongly in limited atonement, his um, son and daughter-in-law had a baby that was at full term and died just like two weeks before it was supposed to be born. And he spoke at the funeral about how he was just he, how he was just his assurance that Felicity, their granddaughter, came to heaven and was welcomed by John's father, who had just died a few months earlier. And I think there's truth in that. Okay. Okay. Now. Let's, um, you know what I'm going to do? Um, This is different, because I didn't get through a lot of material. But um, it was good. And what a wealth of Bible knowledge and understanding is in this class, just from these questions that are are thoughtful and and reverent and, and remarkable. So thank you for the discussion. Next week, we go on to the doctrine of the resurrection. So the schedule is going to be bumped back. But that's okay. We don't, there's no syllabus. There's no final exam. We're, all right. Oh, you thought there was going to be? No. So um, it's good that we end and uh, sing some uh, praise to the Lord for the wonderful redemption that he's bought for us. So let's, let's sing uh, Man of Sorrows, What a Name. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for this amazing 
teaching from your word that you who knew no sin became sin for us. That you were willing to suffer the consequences and the results to which sin leads. <clears throat> the suffering, the betrayal, the loneliness, the shame, the abandonment, the pain, the ebbing away of your life, the mocking, and enduring wave after wave of the unimaginable wrath of the Heavenly Father, of your Father, the wrath that we deserved. Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, as we've talked today, there are, there are things here we don't understand. There are, there are mysteries here beyond what you have told us in your word. And we, we do not in any way mean to disrespect you or probe or insist on knowing things that you have not given us to know. But Lord, we, we probe and question and examine these things because we long to know more about you and the wonder of what you have done. Because we long to know you better. Because we long to know the, the amazing uh, depth of your work of atonement. But Lord, our hearts are content to leave these things now that we do not understand, to leave them with you, knowing that, as your word says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And these things that are revealed, Lord, are so rich and so wonderful. We stand before the Father with no fear of condemnation, we stand forgiven, our sins forever paid for. We have access into the Holy of Holies now because you are our great high priest and you've gone before us and you've opened the way and you welcome us. And so we come and we give you praise and thanksgiving and we worship you. Amen.